soon, I think soon, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's good to hear life out there tonight. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, we are in Isaiah 64 tonight. And uh, I hope you're praying for Afghanistan. Uh, there are probably hundreds of believers. And I don't know how many missionaries, but I got a, a message last night that uh, Wes Bentley, Far-Reaching Ministry, is supporting 22 missionaries. Um, two of them have gotten out, but the other 20 have not. And uh, if you know anything about the Taliban, that uh, it's, it's a death sentence. And, and as believers, uh, they're not going to recant. Uh, and that's, what, that's the choice they're given, recant or die. So we need to really keep these folks in prayer for the believers as well. Uh, as soon as I think uh, the Kabul air, airport issue is settled and it clears, uh, the bloodbath uh, will begin. It, it doesn't matter what they say, okay? Uh, they believe that the West is weak and naive. And if they make a few, you know, international uh, diplomatic statements, then everyone's going to just sort of back off and, well, yeah, they're, it's a peaceful transition. No, it is not. It's brutal. And uh, so let's pray. Uh, let's pray for that right now. Father, uh, we are thankful. You said in your word that no weapon formed against, Lord, your people will prosper. Lord, we believe that. We believe also, Lord, that you're a refuge, that you tell us in the day of trouble that, Lord, we're to run to you, and that, Lord, you're a, you're a safe tower that we can hide ourselves in. And so we want to pray, Father, for all that's going on. We pray against the evil in the country of Afghanistan. We pray for your people. We pray for the Afghan nationals. Lord, who are believers. Lord, the church is a very small organism in that country. And Lord, uh, they're your people. And Lord, uh, uh, we pray also, Father, for the, the missionaries. We, we uh, are connected to 22 of them. And, and there are probably, there could be hundreds more. So Heavenly Father, we, we pray if there needs to be miracles tonight. Miracles of deliverance. Lord, miracles of intervention and protection. We, we thank you that you're a God who not only hears, but you're a God who you dispatch your angels. Lord, you, you intervene. Lord, uh, you're a great help in time of need. And so, Father, the least that we can do tonight and in the days ahead, Lord, is to keep 
Lord, these brothers and sisters in Christ, um, and many of them are families. Lord, how we pray that you would, you would watch over, you would protect and keep. And Lord, we're thankful tonight to, to gather, to gather, to fellowship together, to be, have the freedom to worship. And Lord, to open the Bible, the Word of God. Lord, to preach it. And not only here, Lord, but to have a, a stream that goes out. And as we, we've heard, Lord, people in faraway distances and countries have tuned into it. So, Lord, we thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. Lord, uh, what a mighty, powerful weapon it is. And, Lord, you said we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Lord, may your truth at work, be at work, Lord, within our lives. Thank you for those that are here tonight. We ask your blessing. Uh, we pray, Father, that, uh, Lord, you would give us illumination, Lord, uh, in the word of God. And we praise you for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I'd like to do just sort of a brief, as I do sometimes, a brief review of the, the previous chapter. Because in chapter 63, Isaiah had announced the day of vengeance. Uh, remember, that goes back to chapter 61. That goes back to the opening statements of Jesus in the, in the synagogue at Nazareth. But he, he basically omitted that part. Okay, He spoke about the acceptable day of the Lord, which is right now. Ever since the gospel has come for these last 2,000 years has been, uh, and, it's, and it's basically a cloaked reference to the year of Jubilee, okay, where people are just simply set free. But it says year, uh, this, this ongoing glorious period. But the day of vengeance, and thank God for that, it's, 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 it's abbreviated. Uh, it's a very short period because of God's mercy. He's merciful. And so that day of vengeance will only be a seven-year period. And... Uh, and, and again, to use, I think, sometimes I think we need use, sometimes it's helpful to use different terms. Yes, it's a day of vengeance, but you know what also it is? It's a day of justice. God is going to bring justice, you know, to this world. Uh, he's going to bring justice, you know, to those that have been crying out. Remember in chapter 5 of Revelation, those who have been martyred. And I would imagine maybe even as we speak tonight, martyrdom may be taking some place, you know, in the world, particularly in Afghanistan. And there's those martyrs under the altar uh, in Revelation chapter 5. And they're saying, how long, O Lord, uh, that our blood is avenged? And this is the day of vengeance when God is finally, he's going to do that. And again, it's a period when all human rebellion will finally be dealt with. There will be no more defiance. And, you know, God in his grace, he allows there to be defiance. You know, during this particular, you know, people shake their curse's name all the time. They shake their fist at God. Um, you know, they, they can openly declare their uh, unbelief um, and uh, whatever else they feel against God. But a day is coming uh, when that will not be allowed. Uh, there is a kingdom coming, the, the earthly millennial kingdom. When that kind of stuff, you know, it's, it's interesting that a Bible tells us he will, uh, he will deal with a rod of iron. And that will start. Remember, the day of the Lord starts in the tribulation period. And it goes into the millennial reign, okay? It's not just that seven-year seven period, rather. But it goes in. It's a day of the Lord when he, Jesus Christ, has come. He's established peace. He's put down rebellion. And he's on his throne for a thousand years. And what a glorious time it's going to be for this earth. What a wonderful time. Uh, and yet, and yet, people will still need to be born again. 
They're still going to need to submit and surrender themselves to Jesus Christ. Now, that was in verses 1 through 5 of 63. But in verses 7 through 14, after that reference, you know, to the day of the Lord and to the vengeance and so forth, uh, he reminds us of God's great goodness. And isn't God good? Uh, that is one thing that the devil will always try to lie about is God is not good. And particularly when you're going through a trial, particularly when you're going through some kind of adversity or some crisis happens in your life, he begins to whisper in your ear. Uh, you know, it's, it, it happened really, it began right in the garden. And uh, the, the whole inference was from Satan to Eve and Adam was basically, if God was good, if God was good, then you would be able to eat from that tree, okay? And, and of course, uh, we know that that was the only prohibition. Isn't that amazing? You know, when you think about Adam and Eve, they had a very short Bible. They had a one-verse Bible, okay? And you know what? They couldn't even keep that. They couldn't even keep their one-verse Bible where God said, you know, stay away from that tree. You can eat from all the trees in the garden, maybe on the planet Earth, okay? But the fact of the matter of that one tree, and it just shows you, there, you know, there is, you know, when you have free will, when you have free will, uh, you know, where it can take you, uh, and it can take you so much further uh, than you thought. And that's why we need to have our wills submitted, you know, God's will. Thy, Jesus prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And thy will needs to be done in our life and in our particular experience. And so here, uh, in these verses, he's speaking about, you know, the love of God, the kindness of God that abounds to us. And also, too, he speaks about Israel, that even in all of their afflictions, God was afflicted, and he was carrying them. He was holding them up. And again, we see these truths to Israel, but they also apply to us. There's, there's, there's many different truths, uh, you know, that apply to you and I, um, you know, like, uh, you know, different quotes we, you know, we oftentimes, you know, reference in the Psalms or in the prophets or whatever. Uh, these are glorious truths. And yes, they applied to Israel, but also, too, there's an application uh, to us. And then in 15 and 20, he prays as if he's reminding the Lord that he's our father, okay? Because that wasn't something typical uh, for the Jew of old to think about God, you know, as their father. In other words, you know, it, it's it, how true it is until you're born again, until you're regenerated. You, you don't feel that closeness to God. You, you feel a distance between you and him. And it's only as we really come into that you know, that experience of our salvation and regeneration do all of a sudden, you know, like Paul speaks about, and we see the Lord Jesus in the garden. Paul speaks about it over in Galatians. I think it's chapter 3. It could be chapter 4. I'm not sure. But anyway, he, said, you know, he says, how we pray, Abba, Father. And, uh, and there's something so sweet, you know, when you're in prayer and you just hear somebody, be, somebody just begin to relate to God in that kind of a gracious, kind, and gentle, um, affectionate kind of way because he is our Father. And, and by and large, you know, Isaiah appreciates that because, you know, he, you know, his, his life is filled with God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. But as far as the rank and file of God's people, um, there was that distance there. Yes, people, you know, people walked by faith. People could know God in the Old Testament. But again, they didn't have the great privilege, the vast privilege, you know, that you and I have to receive the Holy Spirit, you know, in our hearts and to have that kind of ongoing witness of God, you know, uh, prompting us, guiding us, leading us, you know, speaking to us, uh, protecting us and preventing us, you know, from doing certain things. And so, uh, <clears throat> so let's now move into uh, chapter 64. 
And it o- he opens it with a prayer, and it's real passion. Uh, we've seen this before with Isaiah. And, and again, you know, we get the wording. We don't always get the tone, okay? But you can read it. You can, you can sometimes, by the Holy Spirit, you can read into it just a passion that, that you know, is in a particular prayer, prayer. We see that oftentimes uh, in David, some of David's prayers in the Psalms. You can see those, psal- those prayers are just sort of, you know, just sort of at gut level kind of a prayer. And, uh, you know, there's times so often, I love the Psalms. I read them all the time. When I go through the 150 chapters, I'm back again at, at verse 1. And I just keep going. I don't know. I think I've gone through the Psalms, the biggest book in the Bible. I think I've gone through that book probably more than any other book. And there's so many things there that just hit you at gut level that just kind of resonate with you. And that's why it's important that, you know, we're, we have a devotional daily, you know, experience in the Word of God. You know, we call, you can call it a devotional life. You can call it daily altar, whatever you want to call it. But to have that experience with, the, with God in each and every day when, when He is speaking, you know, His truth into our heart. And I don't care where you're reading. There's always something in the Word of God. You know, God's word is, is, is comprehensive, it's thorough, uh, it ministers. You know, sometimes I've been in such obscure passages of the Bible uh, where I've just maybe, uh, maybe it's my daily reading or whatever the case may be, and how it's resonated with me. You know, how it has spoken to my heart and to my life. God knows, you know, he will feed us. He will feed us. So it's incumbent, I think, on our part. Make sure you've got a hungry heart. And that's why I think it's important. There's a certain kind of emotional spiritual hunger when you get up first thing in the morning. Uh, that's why, you know, you, you'll see maybe the secular, per, secular-minded person, um, and I can remember this for years, what they do first thing in the morning. You, you see them out there maybe uh, uh, on the train or on the bus or uh, at a restaurant. Or, what are they doing? They're reading a paper, okay? That's a, one of the first. There's a hunger there. And, and how important it is to make sure that we're putting something spiritual in there first thing you know, in the morning, you know, as we're sitting there, maybe praying and having the Bible, our cup of coffee and our Bible in our lap, um, you know, and just uh, trusting and expecting God to just sort of feed us and speak, you know, you know, into our lives in some kind of way. So again, here in verse one, he, he's opening with this very passionate prayer, uh, and he's asking basically for God to open the sky and come down. You know, what he's asking here, if you want to read between the lines, he's asking for a revival. God, would you come down? And you know, there have been times in, in, in the history of Israel and in, in people's individual lives and experience where it seems to be as if the heavens, the heavens opened wide and God came down. And I tell you what, that's one thing we need right now, don't you think? Man, we need God to come down. I, I tell you what, I've known the Lord for about 45 years, maybe 46 years, something like that. And, and I've never seen it so bad. I've never seen this situation so desperate, you know, in our world, in our society, even in the church, that, that God would come down and, and that he would revive, that, that he would work, that he would, you know, you know one, one of the things about revival, and I've studied a little bit of revival, uh, that one of the things that, that takes place whenever there's revival is great repentance, great repentance, a, a great brokenness. And a repenting that comes over the church, that comes over God's people. I've read stories of people, of, of churches, where people lined up for hours. And it took six and seven hours for that li- people to go through that line as they come up to speak to confess their sin. And you know, you know how difficult it is to confess sin. And I read some of these accounts of people, pe- one man confessing murder. 
Other men, you know, other people confessing, you know, theft, grand theft, and things of that particular nature. And you know how hard it is to confess any little thing, isn't it? Oh boy, it's tough when it comes to, you know, bearing your heart. But I'll tell you what, that's revival. And I'll tell you what, when that happens, you know there's going to be revival. And when all these front seats are filled up, you'll know it's revival. <laughs> and I promise I won't spit on anybody, okay? But we need revival. We need God to come down and to affect the affairs of men, to get a hold of the church, get us praying, get us repenting. If we don't repent, you think the world's going to repent? <laughs> I don't think so. And so here he's praying for that. Oh, that you would rend, that you would tear the heavens, uh, and that you would come down, and that the mountains might shake at your presence. You know, I was thinking about this prayer that in a sense, in a sense, it is answered by the incarnation. By Jesus, by God literally coming down to walk among. I, 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 there, there had to be so many, when you think about it, that had really no appreciation for what was taking place. Because you know what? God loves the surprises. He, he loves to, you know, bring to bear those surprises. And I think, you know, the greatest surprise of all history was him was him rending the heavens and coming down and, and taking, taking on flesh, robing himself in flesh, and, and hanging out with 12 guys, you know, for three years. And, he, and that didn't happen until he was 30. He had to wait those 30 years in, in order for that, you know, to happen and, and the timing of it all, you know, waiting for the, waiting for the Father's time. Uh, but when you think about it, that had to be the greatest time um, you know, but yet he comes down. And that's what Pentecost is. And I've said this before. There have been many, many Pentecosts throughout history. Believe me, the church would not survive if, it, if there wasn't. And, and we need that today. We, we need. I want you to pray for that. I want you to throw that into your prayer life. Lord, that you would, you would pour yourself out upon the church. Lord, that you would fill our lives up. Lord, that you would change us, that you would cleanse, that you would purify, that you would so energize the church that we would be on fire. We couldn't help but telling our neighbors <laughs> and anybody that we run into that that's what happens. That's what happens when God's spirit is being poured out and, and reviving. And he's praying for that because he sees the condition of his culture. That's why, you know, as Christians, we can't bury our heads. We can't just bury our heads and forget about, and okay, I'm just going to hunker down and wait for the rapture, you know, kind of a thing. God calls us to engage in, in our society. And whether, it, whether some great awakening happens again or some great revival, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't look like it. But that doesn't stop me from praying for it. And that's one, of the, that's one area I'll be glad to be wrong. To see God just... You know, I, 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 get a, I, you know, I have such a burden for the youth. I really do. I see so many young people. And you know what? Without God's intervention, they're perishing. They, they are perishing. And, and when you see a young person, you know that, that there's incredible potential there. Just commit that life to Christ. I, that, that's true of, of any time in our life but particularly for young people. 
You know, are we praying for our children, our adult children? Are we praying for our grandchildren? My one son, Aaron, grandson, he, 10 years old, and I've never seen anything like this. He got saved so wonderfully, so radically. And you know it. You, you know because there's not just, he has such an identification with the Lord that you, you sense that even at 10 years old, he has a spiritual aptitude. It's more than just a spiritual attitude where, where somebody, you know, you know, uses some Christian terms. No, there's an aptitude. There's a spiritual aptitude that's there. And, man, I just, I pray that God, I pray God would get a hold of all my grandchildren like that. But I pray that, I pray, you know, I pray for, for God, for just a reviving to break out, to break out. Wouldn't it be nice to see a revival break out like COVID-19? I, I, I'm amazed at how many people are just obedient to COVID-19. Man, to be obedient to the Lord like that, to walk in lockstep of obedience to the Lord, man, bring it on, Lord. So, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might shake. Perhaps, you know, he's even describing some end-time events here because <clears throat> he speaks about as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes the water to, to boil, to make your name known uh, to your adversaries, uh, that the nations may tremble at your presence. You know, Second Peter chapter 3, I think, gives us maybe perhaps some greater insight on that when Peter says this uh, in his second epistle, in his uh, ch third chapter, verse 10, he says, The day of the Lord will come. It will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements will melt with a fervent heat, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So he, here he's speaking about what, what, you know, the day of the Lord and what will actually happen, you know, at the end, you know, of the millennial reign when the new heavens and the new earth come down, Revelation uh, 21 and 22. He says, therefore, brother, our beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things that are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people will twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. But you, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but instead grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever, for now, both now and forever. Uh, amen. Now let's pick, our, our, pick it up back in 64 at verse 3. 
He says, when you did awesome things. Now, he's, he's always, one thing you see, you see it in, the, in the, the, the psalmist in their writings, always harking back and remembering the Exodus, remembering their deliverance, remembering the Passover. Uh, it speaks of, in a sense, a, a national kind of regeneration. And, and many different writers of Scripture will hark back to what God did to, to cause them to remember presently uh, because of what, they, what they're hoping God to do again. Remember, we serve a miracle-working God. And that's why one of the things I'm praying for Afghanistan, that there would be miracles of deliverance, that, that God would intervene, that if need be, he would send angels. Um, you know, I, I've, read so, I've read so many different stories um, of God's intervention in so many different ways. And even though perhaps maybe we've not been delivered in that kind of way, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that's why that's why it's important that we're biblicists, okay? That we understand as we look at the stories of the Bible, because why? Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have to remember that. We tend to forget that. But because maybe we haven't seen, you know, the water open up. You know, we haven't seen, you know, the ground open up and and you know, swallow up uh, you know the rebels and, and you look at so many different miracles. Um, you know, Peter being an angel coming and deliver him, delivering him, opening up the jail cell, things of that particular nature. God does those things. And uh, we, we have to believe that, even though perhaps maybe we didn't see that. And so here he's harking uh, back to the Exodus and they're being delivered. And he says, when you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountain shook at your president, uh, presence. rather. And again, he, he's... He's reminding them of the miraculous history because you know what? They forgot it. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm surprised sometimes of how many times this, the prophet in the Old Testament speaks about them forgetting God. Now, here's the thing. They didn't forget that there's a God in heaven. Here's the thing. Here's the thing they forgot, and here's the thing we forget. We forget God in our everyday experience. We forget him when we're tempted. We, we, we tend to forget him, you know, when we feel the impulse you know, to give in or to sin in some kind of way. I'm sure that's happened to you uh, more than once where a temptation came and you just sort of, you know, without really thinking about the Lord, you just sort of, you know, your flesh, the flesh can just kind of give in. You know, that's why Paul said at one point, oh, wretched man that I am, uh, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Uh, but I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, he's the one that he's the one that delivers us. And, and, and we, will, we will at times we too will forget God. We'll forget about his, his miracles. We'll, we'll forget about the fact that, you know what, he can strengthen me. He can strengthen us in that moment of temptation where we feel maybe the tug, the pull. You know, think about temptation. It resonates with something in us, something in our human nature, you know, something of the old nature, the, the desires, the proclivities, those kinds of things. When temptation hits us, it's sometimes it's like a magnet you can almost feel kind of your flesh, you know, moving, you know, in that kind of direction. And sometimes we believe, well, you know, that, that thing had such a hold on me. Uh, I don't think the Lord can, can really deliver me. And sometimes we don't even think that far. Sometimes we just sort of capitulate and we can kind of give in to it. So he's saying here, uh, you did awesome things for which we did not look. We didn't, we didn't realize it. And uh, maybe they didn't even ask for it. But God did it. He said, you came down. Uh, and the mountain shook 
you know, at your presence since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for the one who waits for him. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? Because Paul expounds on that. He uses this verse to expound on human wisdom. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And Paul is using this verse here. And he's speaking about, you know, the, the wisdom of the world and how important it is that we're not just persuaded by the wisdom of the world, the secular ideas, the concepts. You ever notice with the world, there's a constant um, trending of different ideas, different concepts. It's, it's, it's an ever-fluctuating kind of a, you know, always-changing kind of a thing. You know, how the, the culture is, you know, into this and they're into that. Um, and it just kind of moved from one, you know, maybe tintillating thing to the next. And, uh, you know, and I think what really, um, what really has developed that in perhaps maybe the greatest way is social media. I mean, there's something always coming across the wire. There's always something to, you know, I, I, I use it oftentimes because I'm always maybe looking for some, I'm searching for information. But when I hit the Google thing, Susan hit the Google thing, they always have this interesting article that comes up. It's always like, and you ever do this? You know, the, the, you, 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 go, you go to Google or search for something, and all of a sudden you get distracted by this other article, and then you read that article, and you forgot why you even went to Google. Why you went to get certain information? Because why? It's so distracting. And you know what? That's our world. And, and it's why it's important. You know what? We need to shut the world out. You know, there's a lot of people that could be here tonight, but you know what? They're TV addicts. They're, they're, they're addicted to the video screen. They, they can't stand to tear themselves away for one night, for a couple hours. Now, if they, I, if I would, you and I were to tell them to their face, they're addicted. They'd be offended about that. But it's true. And that's why Jesus said the truth will set us free. We, ha we have to be very careful. The world is always encroaching, always trying to grab our attention, always trying to get into our head. Because once it gets into your head, it starts to control your thoughts. And, and look at how many people in our world they don't have an original thought of their own. It's everything they get from the talking heads. What they hear on the news. What, what's trending. Man, the Word of God will renew us. And, you know, it'll inspire us. The, the thing about the Holy Spirit in your life and the Word of God in your life, it'll inspire us to be creative. To not just be some drone uh, controlled by social media, controlled by the world. Um, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says this, uh, verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
Now, Paul speaking about his, his initial experience as he came there. He didn't come there as the dynamic Apostle Paul. Man, he came in weakness and trembling. He probably had more fear than anything. And my speech and my preaching were not with, with per persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the ru rulers of this age knew. For had they known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Now again, he uses this here basically as a proof text, speaking about the human wisdom, the secular wisdom, the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of this world. It is so defective. It's so defective that it's constantly morphing and changing. So when you buy into that, and, and what, I, what I've seen sometimes is, is as the world is just moving on from one thing to the other, sometimes Christians get sort of locked in to some kind of you know, secular idea, secular kind of concept. Coming to nothing. And, and this, is, this, this verse here he uses from Isaiah 64 is a proof text when he says this. He says, as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. He's speaking about the unbeliever there. That's the primary meaning of that verse. He's referring to the unbelieving, the secular wisdom of this age. The things of God are the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That's why when you tell people about the love of God in your relationship with Jesus Christ, they give you that dog look. I mean, they're lost. They really don't get it because they can't. You, know, you need the Spirit of God to understand the things of God. I love verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Aren't you thankful for that? I mean, we, we, we as believers, we, we tend to, you know, you walk with the Lord for a certain length of time, you, you, you can, you can kind of take that for granted. But man, what we have, God has imparted to us His Spirit, His life, His truth. And He didn't just sort of drop it on us and, and kind of move on. He's in us. He's in us. The will to work his good pleasure, you know, within our lives. Now, let's move, move back to Isaiah uh, 64, 5. He's saying here, speaking about the Lord, you meet him or her, anyone who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed, you are indeed angry for we have sinned. And in these ways we continue. We need to be saved. So he's saying basically here uh, in verse 5 here, and it's, 
you know, we, we number the verses, but it's really, you know, it's a continuation of the thought all the way through this first part here. You know, how the Lord meets the person who's waiting for him. The, the person who's rejoicing in righteousness, the person who's thinking about the Lord. You know, maybe you've said this, you know, I really need to, I really need to get with God. I really need to meet with the Lord. Okay, here's, here's what needs to happen. You need to wait on him. We, we, I think one of the services anyway, Sunday, I, I quoted Psalm 4610, um, where the writer there, I think, it's, I think it's Asaph, he says, be still and know that I am God. And when you read Psalm 46, the whole world is in upheaval. And, and, it, and it's confusing, just like in a sense our world today. I mean, uh, um, when you look at all that's going on in our culture and our society, it's so easy to be fearful. If we get focused on that, if we get, you know, here, what, we're, we're all waiting for the Delta variant. I, I turn on the, the local news, and the whole news, the whole news is about coronavirus. It's like, leave me alone, okay? Stop trying to torture me. I, I understand why people are just fear-stricken. You're just kind of like waiting for the next wave, you know, kind of a thing. And you know what? We need to look to him. We need to look to the Lord. You know, one of, one of the verses in Isaiah is, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And we need to keep looking to him. What, uh, the writer of Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We need to get our eyes off of all the crazy, ever-fluctuating circumstances that are out there in our world, out there in our culture, because they will just unnerve you. They will just sort of beat you up. And do you know anybody like that? you know anybody that they just have their pulse on everything that's kind of finger on the pulse of everything that's going on in the culture and the society? They're crazy. They're a nervous wreck. They're worrying about their finances because we've got a house of cards ready to fall over. I mean, everywhere you look, folks, we're at the end of the road. Health-wise, me medicine, <laughs> politically, economically, financially, we're in deep trouble. But we have an ever-present God who says, I will be with you to the end of the age. Aren't you thankful for that? That, that he's going to be with us no matter, you know, no matter what happens. Um, and there may be some serious changes down the road, folks. I, I think there are. I think there's some real serious changes in the pipeline uh, for America. And, uh, and I, I would prefer the great escape, okay? <laughs> that's fine with me, Lord. You, you want to rapture me? Uh, rapture us? That, that's great. That would uh, be wonderful to do that. But that may not be the case. No, I believe in the rapture. But I don't believe necessarily that we have to, we're going to escape every trial, Okay. I, I think that uh, I think I think right now the church in America, and has been for the last year particularly, uh, even even maybe a little bit further back than that. But we're we're being tested. We're being tested. We're we're being proven. Is 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 our faith gold, or is it tin? Is our faith really truly gold? Is 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 it the solid stuff? Is it a genuine article, or or is it just tin? And I think that we need to keep our eyes upon Jesus because, again, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And we need to trust him because we're going to have to face some difficult things. And, and if, you, if anybody has a, 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 a fake kind of faith, they are going to collapse. They're going to collapse. They're going to fall apart. 
The Bible promises us for the believer, the one who's truly trusting God, that we will not be moved. And in the Hebrew, it means to fall apart, to just shake apart. That's not for you and I. But we're going to know people. We're going to know believers. They're going to fall apart. They're not hanging on to the promises. They're not really walking with Jesus. They're saved. I'm not going to refute that. But we need to walk with him. We need to stay close to him. David said that. I follow close behind you. I follow hard behind you, Lord. And we need to do that as well. So here, as he, the last part of verse 5, in these ways we continue, we need to be saved. And again, this, and I've said this so many times, but I think we need to be reminded of it, that our salvation is an ongoing process, okay? Uh, we need to be saved from, from the culture. We need to be saved from our own habits, our own tendencies, our own sinful proclivities. We need to be saved from those kinds of things, you know, from whatever present pitfalls uh, that are out there. Now, as we come to verse 6, he states a universal truth about humanity because fallen, you know, fallen human nature is basically unclean in his sight. And sometimes people will justify their life and justify what's going on in their life as they compare themselves with other people. And you ever know that you can always compare yourself with, you know, somebody down and out and, you know, always look, always feel better about yourself, you know, kind of a thing. And that's why Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he said, comparing yourself with yourselves is not wise. That's why we need to look to the Lord. That's where the comparison needs to come. And that's why, you know, again, the Word of God, you know, God's Word will refine us. God's Word will test us. Uh, God's Word will challenge us in so many different ways. But he says in verse 6, and this is, I think one of the familiar verses in Isaiah, in the entire, entire book. He says, but we all are like an unclean thing. And, and human goodness hates verses like this, okay? The, uh, human goodness, well, don't include me in that. <laughs> he says, all of our righteousness, right, now notice it's plural, righteousnesses, <laughs> are like filthy rags. Now, this verse has been a little bit sanitized, okay? He's comparing men's best to a used menstrual cloth, a used, smelly menstrual cloth. That's the very best men can offer to God. That, that's a comparison that he makes. The Lord's making that comparison, Because I think a lot of people feel like, well, you know what? I've really done my best. And you know what? I believe that. I believe people do their best. I like good people. But you're not good enough. You're not good enough. Your best is insufficient to save you. <laughs> now, he says here, we all fade <laughs> as a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind. In other words, the best of intentions. You ever seen this in your own life? You get a moment of inspiration. And it's like, yeah, yeah, man, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this thing the Lord has put in my heart. 24, 48 hours later, it's like, you're waning. You're waning. And it's like, oh. We fade, don't we? We, we fade the best of our intentions. 
And every one of us at one time or another, you know, God, you know, you get that moment of inspiration from the Holy Spirit. And he puts something in your heart to do something, you know, to, 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 to serve somebody else's interest or to, to give in some kind of way. But when it comes down to it, by the time it gets to that, it's like uh, you're all gun shy. And, uh, and believe me, it's happened to us all. And it certainly happened to this one up here. You know, the, the things of the flesh, you know, the, the resolutions of the flesh, they so quickly evaporate. Did you ever make, did you, before you knew Christ, did you ever make a New Year's resolution? Every year, every year. They, like, in my twi early 20s, I, I'd make this resolution. Yeah, yeah. Going to quit smoking. <laughs> you know? Going to quit this and going to quit that. And, and, uh, and how quickly. The resolutions for me lasted about two weeks. It's about a two-week run on, on resolutions. And... Uh, it's a, the flesh is weak. It, it, it thinks it's strong. It, it thinks it can do so many things. You, we see it in the world all the time. You know, you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know. <laughs> Got to get in there and, you know, fight a good fight. And, and, and you realize how I remember as a young Marine. I watched all those John Wayne movies of the 1950s. All of them. I think it was every movie I watched. I'm joining the Marines. I got in the Marine Corps, and I thought, oh, my goodness. They're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me before I even get to war. And then when I did get to war, I was like, oh, my goodness. They're really trying to kill me here. And the whole John Wayne syndrome, it was gone. It's amazing how we can romanticize things. Romanticize. I imagine people. I put. I imagine people romanticize their, their mission, you know. And uh, and I'm great for that. I, I have an imagination. I can amazingly romanticize things. And and I have. I've you know I've been in missions faster. And man, I just I could. I had these plans of all that was going to take place. But you get over there. So poof. All your plans go right out the window. And the reality, you know, sets in. So our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. <laughs> now remember that word iniquity speaks about the bent. The, the bent, you know, that every one of us have. My bent is probably different than your bent. Your tendency is probably different. You're, you might be drawn to certain kinds of things that, to me, I, I said this before, um, gambling. You could give me free tickets. I, I have no interest. I have no interest. It's just, it's just, but for some folks, man, they're just, they're like a draw, like a magnet, you know, to the, to the casinos. I don't see, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. I don't like games, period, you know. Margie gets mad at me when they're all having a game and come on, play the game with us. And it's like, no, I hate games. <laughs> I don't know why. You know, I just, I just hate games. And uh, but again, I've got weaknesses, and I'm not telling you what they are. I've got weaknesses. All right, I will. Candy. <laughs> I do. I like, I like candy. I have to be careful. I have to stay away from it. <clears throat> 
But you know, I knew a man several years ago, he used to go to our church, and he kept falling away. And sadly, I recently heard of his untimely death. Died as a young man. And as I look at, I, as I, as I look at that brother, I'm not going to mention his name. Uh, some of you know probably who I'm talking about. But he'd, he'd, he'd be in church for a while, for a season, then he'd fall away. And that was basically his experience, you know, as a believer, back and forth, back and forth. And it broke my heart. It broke my heart to hear two weeks ago. And, and before that, he blew his marriage. Blew his marriage. Kids, kids just out on the street. And, I, and I, I believe with all my heart that he and his wife were born again. And it broke my heart to hear that. Ray Ortland, um, he's a pastor and a, writes a commentary. He said this. He said, if we wander from his ways, God may teach us a lesson by handing us over to the power of our sins and hardening us so that we can't come back. We tell ourselves we can fool around with some darling sin and then when we feel like it, just drop it and come back to God. No big deal. Where do we learn that kind of thinking? Does the Bible teach us to trivialize God? Sin is a power beyond our control. When we find our hearts hardened and lethargy, with lethargy and self-pity, even blaming God himself. And that's the thing. When somebody's in that kind of condition, they're not going to own it. They're not going to look in the mirror and say, I'm responsible for my situation. They're going to start blaming other people, and they're going to start blaming God. That's always the way. Even blaming God himself so that we don't even return to him. What then? We pray that God will return to us. Do you see it here? And it's, he says it in, in, uh, in this section here, I think in chapter 63. Return for the sake of your servants. I think it's verse 17. We are utterly dependent on God. And when we have wandered from his ways and no longer fear him, our hope is not in ourselves at all. Our hope is in that his mercy, that God will return to us. And how... How he does, and thank God, thank God for that. So verse 7, <clears throat> there is no one who calls on your name. Now, everyone had an excuse why they didn't pray or couldn't make it to prayer meeting or whatever the case may be. Uh, no one calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. He goes on to say that, for you have hidden your face from us. And have consumed us by our iniquity. So as God's face, as far as they were concerned, it seemed to be hidden. His smile uh, was gone. And, and the society, unfortunately, was turned over. Uh, do you know in Romans, Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks about that? Uh, that's, not, that that's, that's a condition that can happen to a culture or it can happen to an individual. Paul mentions it in, in Romans chapter 1 when he speaks about how a person or a culture is turned over. And he says the word turned over, or given over, three different times. And he highlights it by saying all the perverse sexual behavior 
that begins to take over people's lives. And it's, it's become so pervasive, you know what? It's cultural now. When you look at all the sexual perversion that's going on in our world, and they're constantly pushing it on us. And what I mean by tel television programming. You see all these relationships, all these perverted relationships as they're advertised on TV. And, and, what, what the, and the devil knows that. And he knows this is how you normalize sinful behavior. You put it on TV. You make it acceptable. And the, 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 the oddity of it all is, the irony is that people are accepting it all the while they're laughing at it. Because it's so often done in a comedic kind of a humorous way. I think that's happened to America. It's been turned over to its sins. Because it's rejected God. That's what happens. God has to say to a, to a culture, to a, to a nation, to a people, okay. That's all that is. God, okay, that's what you want. The Bible says in Genesis, when it speaks about the destruction that came upon the world, God shall not always strive with man. There's a point. There's a point where he lets a person do what they want to do. It's like a parent, in a sense. A, a parent, if, if, you ever, if you're a parent, you've ever had a, just a real rebellious kid? You know, I'm leaving. I'm sick and tired of your rules and your regulations. And I'm going to go and I'm going to do what I want with my life. What can you do? As a parent, you, you love that kid. You continue to love that kid even in their rebellion. But you have to say, okay, nothing more I can do. So God turns the culture over. Is he still saving people? Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Hopefully people, people in the culture get so sick uh, as, it, as, it just, as it degrades morally. They just get so sick of it. There are people, you know, there are people out there that have this sense of morality. I, I think they're born like that. I, I think God has placed that, you know, in their conscience. And, and they see that, and they see just the perversity all around them, and it, and it sickens them. Now, he says in verse 8, <clears throat> and we've heard this in, in the previous chapter, but now, O Lord... You are our Father. And now he confesses this, the intimacy of this relationship, at least for him. And, and as if he's saying it on behalf of the nation. I mean, God did father the nation. You know, when you think about America, God blessed America. But as far as that personal father-son, father-daughter, intimate relationship, that has to go beyond the fact that he's your creator. It's because you've put your faith, your trust in him. And that's one of the things that's indicative that when the Spirit of God comes into somebody, there's that Abba Father. How often when you're in a trial, you're in a situation, or you see something that really emotionally affects you, and you say, oh, dear Lord. Oh, dear Lord. You, you, it's like there's something, your spirit, it's like your spirit is just sort of prompted to cry out. 
to your heavenly Father. Lord, intervene. Lord, help. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. And all we are the work of your hands. And that's why it's important. You know what? You need to choose. People need to choose to be a vessel of honor. Paul encourages that over in the New Testament. Uh, when, he, when he says this over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and in verse 20, he says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood, clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, and he was speaking about different sinful activities, if anyone uh, cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now, notice what he says. Flee youthful lust. There are certain things, sinful activities sometimes, that begin in youth. And you know what? They can be carried all the way through life. He's saying we need to, for certain things, you know what? We need to be like Joseph. We need to flee. Flee those youthful desires. That's what a lust is. It's just a strong desire that we can have within our hearts and lives. But pursue, he says, righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So we are the clay, you're the potter, and all we are, we all are the work of your hand. Now he says, he's, he's crying out in this prayer, do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, for we are your people. And again, Isaiah knew God's mercy. I, I was thinking about David, Psalm 103. Um, we're not going to read it right now, but you know, read that tomorrow morning. Read Psalm 103. What a great psalm it is. And David rehearses, you know, God's mercy, God's compassion, uh, his, his favor, his grace. Um, he daily loads us with benefits. Our God is so incredibly gracious and kind and good. And, you know, we need to remember that. We need to remember that, that, that he is good. What's it say in Psalm 100, excuse me, Psalm 73? God is good to Israel, and such as be of a pure heart. He's not only good to Israel. And I, I always love what the, the, the psalmist says next. But as for me, <laughs> God is good to Israel, and such as of a pure heart. But as for me. <laughs> and the, the problem was that he got looking at the wicked. He got looking at the wicked. They were prospering. They were doing good. He wasn't doing so good as God's, you know, as a child of God. And, uh, and, and he knew theologically. He knew that God was good. But in his experience, he was doubting that. He was struggling with it. But we need to remember how good our Father is. Uh, so do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, for we are your people, your holy cities, our wilderness, Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. You know what? There is no weapon that destroys cities and peoples like sin. Amen. We've had a lot of plagues and things over history. 
nothing has been, there's been, not been a greater plague or virus than sin. It destroys so many people, so many lives, cities, wipes out families. As a matter of fact, when you look at some of the ancient uh, nations in the Bible, they're gone. They're gone. <laughs> it's wiped out. And that's what sometimes often prophecy students ask. Well, if we're the number one nation in the world, why aren't we in prophecy? <laughs> well, I'll let your imagination go on that one. Why aren't we in prophecy? Our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praised you, is burned up with fire. And all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain? And again, he, he's lamenting here the national loss, the calamity that's come upon the nation. You know, I was thinking about, you know, if they're talking, he's thinking about their, their beautiful and holy temple. You know, America, what a beautiful nation we have. How blessed, how incredibly blessed. And, and, but think about all the lives we'll waste if there's not intervention. You know what? Your prayers can make a difference in people's lives. Now, I know a lot of Christians don't believe that. They don't believe that because they don't pray. But your prayers for your loved ones, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, they make a difference. God answers prayer. God saves. He ends here in verse 12 with two questions. Will you restrain yourself because of these things? And what are you saying here? Will you restrain yourself from us? Lord, we need you to come down. We need you to step in to our world, to our history, to our lives. Will you hold your peace? And afflict us very, very severely. So Isaiah's prayer here is for God to just relent and give space for grace. Lord, intervene, step down. And you know, I think he knew in a sense, what, remember we talked about Jonah in chapter 4. The reason why he didn't want to go to Nineveh, because what he knew, that God was gracious. He knew that God was kind. I don't know if I, did I, uh, yeah, I did. He says, uh, he says, therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from doing harm. You see, that is the God that we serve. The God who laid down his life for us. <laughs> and as we read in Peter there, you know, his long-suffering his patience is salvation. He wants to save people tonight. He wants to save people through your life. 